0: I want you to hear this morning, God say this, that above all that, you, yes, you, are the pinnacle of God's creation. You're the top. You're above it all. And what a great marvel, what a great wonder to think about, that yes, humanity, human life, is greater in God's eyes than anything he has created. That's mind-blowing, amazing. And so on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, I want you to know that, that your life has great worth, has great value. God thinks you're something special. That's the story. That's the biblical narrative. That's what God wants us to embrace. And today on the Sanctity of Life Sunday, for 13 years now, we have taken this week, set it apart, to to blow the trumpet for the unborn. But I want us on this day not only to remember to be faithful to do that, but also that we would embrace the whole story of life. That yes, we would blow the trumpet for the unborn, but that we would also, beyond the womb and even to the tomb, Love every life, value every life. We live in a day and age where the biblical narr- or the narrative of life, the story of life looks different. From culture to culture, from different ways of thinking, more than, than any other age we live in. I want to give you some scenarios this morning. One, right here in our Metroplex, is I was talking to Jennifer Shelton this week, who is the president of Real Options, who we get to uh, support and partner with for for many years now. And they're on the front line of of caring for women in our community. Women who uh, find themselves often in a time of life where uh, they least expected to be pregnant. uh, A time where... They've got choices to make, and Real Options is there to help guide them and direct them, obviously, toward the choice of life. One of the things that Jennifer told me this week was just kind of the trends and the things that they're seeing in our age and day, and I think it helps us. It helps us understand, and I I think it helps us understand the different narratives, different stories that are out there when it comes to life. Recently, she said what they've seen an increase in in our community are Women of different cultures, specifically even Hindu and Buddhists and Muslims, who are coming seeking to have an abortion. Um, many coming because they're at a place in life where they have enough kids. That's their story. They have enough kids; they don't need any more. And so their view is that this is an okay thing. Culturally, it is accepted, and so they want to take this step of abortion. Some in our community are in their 30s and 40s who are married. A fourth, people that they see at Real Options find themselves in that scenario. Where they're at in life and they've already raised kids and got them to a certain point And having another child just kind of throws a wrench in things. And then you have mid-20s and late-20s as well. Some couples cohabitating together. And then you have a baby in the picture now, and let's call them boys, they want to bail. And so, abortion for them, they think, is the answer. And so, there's different scenarios. There's a lot of different narratives and a lot of things that that, that people are thinking when it comes to life and understanding of what life is. Even heard this recently, so I was conversing with a, a gentleman, there's a, a teaching out there today in the, in the physics world that you and I live in a matrix world, a computer world, a, a simulated world, because mathematically, it's too mind-boggling of how amazing creation is, so it must have been a computer, and you and I are just in a game. Wouldn't that be interesting if one day our fight was once, you know, against evolution, the teaching of that, that that's what was ended up being taught. Not there yet, but the discourse, the conversation is out there. And so what does that mean? Well, so it means the issue of sin and things like murder. And if I hurt you, if I do something to offend you, it's really not a big deal because we're just in this game. And so what does that talk about the value of life? Not much. A lot of different narratives out there. And it got me thinking this week of all the different narratives, all the different backgrounds. And it's not about pointing fingers whatsoever, but it's understanding life. Who defines it? Who started it? And why life matters and why it matters to us or it should matter to us. Because let's be honest, parents in here, the narratives we hear about today, that they're different than when we were raised. Most people were raised up on a Judeo-Christianity kind of view about creation. You, you kind of had that. That was in the fabric of, of a lot of homes. But today, m- many places where our kids go to school, this is not the narrative the greater majority is some other narrative. And so this morning, what, I, what I'd like to do is I'd like to do it in three parts. Is to talk about the biblical narrative. The biblical story of life. With the understanding that we're to love the whole story of life. That, that you and I would love the life in the womb. Beyond the womb to the tomb and even care so much about somebody that we care about their life after the tomb. That we would embrace the whole story. And so this morning, do this with me. Look at Acts 17 because that's where Paul was. We looked at this text nearly three months ago and we did so kind of in a different context, in a different light. But I want you to think about Paul's story today. What he's going to stand up and share on Mars Hill there in Greece, in Athens. As he's going to share today, he's going to share in a context with many different narratives, many different views of life, of how life started, of gods and who the gods are in Greece. And so look at this text if you could. In Acts 17 verse 23, Paul begins to speak. He says, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription on it, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And so Paul's looking out. He has seen the many forms of worship in the city, the idolatry, the worship of other gods, mythology, Greek mythology. And there's this one altar that is set up to an unknown God. And he takes the opportunity to address the people about the one true God saying that this one that you're ignorant about this unknown God let me tell you who he is. Let me tell you who the one true God is. Now Paul's goal here is not to throw another God into their mix but to let them know that he is the only God. The only one. And to make him known. And so Paul's saying, I'm going to reveal to you the one true God, who he is, and the truth about life as I do, and the truth about you. Look at verse 24, he goes on, he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. You see, the Greeks, what did they believe? They believed in a God that made every God. And they were over different domains. But Paul is saying there's one God who made everything. He has sovereign authority over heaven and earth. He's not confined to temples. As the Greeks would localize their gods to different temples and have priests that would tell you what to do and how you were to make sacrifices to appease these gods. But Paul says, this God... God overall, God of all creation, not confined to any building. He's dependent on no one. He owns everything, does not need anything from us. And get, Paul says he has created man. And look at that last part of verse 25. Giving to all people life and breath and all things. And what's the biblical narrative of life? If we go back to the beginning of our Bibles this morning. Genesis 1.1 says a lot. In the beginning was God. And he created the heavens and the earth. He's the creator of all things. In him lies everything that is, is because of him. Everything exists, nothing exists outside of God. Everything exists because of him. If you go further on in Genesis 1, after we see the creation of everything, the the, the earth is starting to be filled. The oceans, the moons, the stars, the great wonder that we talked about just a bit ago. In verse 26, we see the pinnacle of God's creation. It says, Then God said, This beautiful scene, the scene of great wonder. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What an amazing two verses. Two verses that should cause us to marvel. Over God this morning. God is the creator. We see that here. But specifically as you look at these verses on the screen. I want us to see when it says God. That word God there is the word Elohim in Hebrew. The significance of this word is this. It it means one. But it also carries the idea of plural. It's a singular plural. And what do we know about God? That he is one, yes. But he is three persons. As you follow this verse, what do we see next? God said, and you see this divine communication, this conversation of the triune God where it's, they say together, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. You see these worlds of plurality where it says us and our, and, and it leads us to this, that God is one. And three persons, as we see throughout Scripture that he is Father, that he is Son, and he is Holy Spirit. And we see this beautiful dialogue of the Trinity. Talking about the pinnacle of God's creation. Let us, in our likeness, create man. As we follow the line of the story of God and life and creation, you go to Colossians 1.16. And it talks about Christ. And Paul says this, that for by Christ all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. God made us. Jesus made us. And he made us for himself. That's why we were created. That's why we're here. Paul calls Jesus in Acts 3.15 the prince of life. He's the originator of life. He's the author of life. And so what did God do in creation, in creating man? It says, let us make man in our own image back in Genesis 1.26 and in verse 27. You and I alone are God's special creation. Only God has created us like him like him and his image. This idea of image is the idea of carving or cutting. The idea of likeness comes from the root that means to be like. You put these two words together and it means that God made us as a representation of him. To be like God in certain aspects, in certain ways, with personality, with morality, with spiritual qualities that God and man share, that you and I would have self-consciousness, that we would have a God consciousness, be able to, to realize who God is, even as Romans 1 says, looking at creation, recognizing, yes, there is a God, that we would have freedom, that we would have responsibility, yes, speech, and even moral discernment. We could go on and on and on, but ultimately, God created us in his image, in his likeness, that we would have a capacity for spiritual fellowship and relationship with him. And ultimately, you and I are to reflect God. We're reflecting the Trinity. That was God's design. That was his plan. And Patrick, if you want to put Genesis 1 back up just for a bit, I want to go back to it as well. Because not only were we created in his image and his likeness back in 26 and 27, but it also says this at the end of that. That he created us both male and female. I don't know if you got that. There he goes. He created them. Male and and female. That part of the creative order is God's plan for gender. That, that you and I were created not with a, a choice of our gender, but he specifically created us to be male, and then he created female. Not a choice, but a part of the creative order, he has created us either male or either female. It's not a choice. And then he continues in verse 27, but also in verse 28. Talks to us about two clear purposes in the creative order that impacts you and I. He says, God blesses them. He's talking about man and woman. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Part of the creative order, the narrative of life, is that you and I were made to rule. What does that mean? You and I were made to manage. We were made to steward everything that God has given us here on the earth. We're responsible for it. That includes work. Work. We were made to work. We were made to, to oversee God's creation and manage it. Second, he says, "Here we'd be fruitful, and multiply. God has made male. He has made female and the only way to produce another person. This was God's plan, and no other way, and no other plan He has given to us. And so he gives us these two purposes: to rule and to be fruitful and multiply. This is the narrative. This is the story. And this is a story that that many don't hold dear to, that many in our day-to-day don't value. But we are to value it. Think more about God and his creation of mankind in Psalm 139, a familiar text this morning. Some hallmark text I want to give you from Genesis 1 to Psalm 139. In verse 13, it says, David is speaking about God. He's worshiping God with these words. And listen to what he says. He says, you, God, formed my inward parts. Literally that inward part right there is my kidneys. (laughs) Interesting he points that out. But the idea is that you formed my organs. You've made them all. You wove me, God, in my mother's womb. You knitted me together. My frame was not hidden from you, in verse 15, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. And in Psalm 119, the psalmist says in verse 73, your hands made me, fashioned me together. We exist only in God. And from the very start, God fashions the embryo with the chromosomes bearing the human code. The genetic makeup is present from the very beginning. That's God's work. In fact, according to research, Randy Alcorn says this. He says that eight weeks, when we think about what is present there in the womb, the organs are there. The brain is functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver is making blood cells. The kidneys are cleaning the fluids. There are clear fingerprints. Some babies are even sucking their thumbs and responding to sound at eight weeks. What we have here after conception is a person from the very beginning. In fact, Psalm 139 verse 16 continues and says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. This is David talking about God. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them, God. The trying God knew us before we were even in our mother's womb. He knew our destiny. He foreknew our days. And so what's our response to this narrative? In Psalm 139, David tells us. In verse 14, it says, I will give thanks to you, God, for I'm fearfully, I am wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. That's what God desires from us, is to recognize that yes, He's the creator, that He has made us with great worth and great value for His purposes. And that our souls would know it very well. But obviously we live in a world that does not respond that way. At times that leads to injustices. Many different forms. Horrific sin in many different forms in the age that we've lived in. Even when it comes to the womb. To such defining issue of abortion in our age. And this isn't just a when we talk about this topic, and I'm always careful when we do to do this with sensitivity. It's not just a, a deal where the, the church, I mean, for so many years, there's, there's different segments and subcultures that how they handle this topic is, 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 is horrific as well, of pointing fingers into and, and the world. But it's not just a, a world issue. Nearly a, a quarter, a million of abortions that will occur will occur in Bible-believing churches. I mean, so it's not just an issue of, of the world. It's, it's an issue of, of the church as well. And so when we think about this and we communicate about this. And, and it, it also leads us to think if that's part of our story to understand this morning, this, this is not to condemn, to push down. Not at all. In fact, if you're here today, and that's part of your story, I I want you to hear the words of Christ this morning. He tells all of us. I mean, we all have brokenness in our past, and our history. He says, to come to him, all who are weary, heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle. That's Jesus. He's humble in heart. And he says to us, I will give rest to your soul. No matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He comes, he tells us in Romans 8, 1, to not bring condemnation, but to free us from our burdens and our brokenness. Not to push us down, but to hold us up and to forgive us and love us with grace. But it's significant that we talk about the narrative. It's significant that we address this issue and understand the dignity, the wonder, the worth of human life, because so many today don't value it. But it's not just about blowing the trumpet for the unborn, but it's also about life after birth as well. That we value everyone. Think back to what Paul said on that day in Mars Hill in Acts 17. Look at verse 26. Because he spoke here not just about that God created life, but listen to what I says in verse 26. He says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation. Here's the deal. No one is a mistake. No one is an accident. And here's also the deal. Where someone lives in the age and the time they live in. is not just up to chance or some accident. It is God's purpose. You see that there? That he is appointed. He's determined the times and the boundaries of where one would live. He even determines that so here's what that tells me that even life after the womb is important too that you and I should be pro-life from the womb to the tomb as well and so what does that mean this morning I think it comes to everyone in here and we ask how do I value other people how do I care for others how do I see other people the last couple of years, we, we've seen a topic of about life mattering. God values every life, every life. What does he tell us from, from places like John 13, where he tells us to, to love others, to love your neighbor, uh, to care for others as you would want to be treated as well, the golden rule. But I love Matthew 5. In verse 43 through 48, in the Sermon of the Mount, listen to what Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Obviously, Jesus is not for that. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not, do, you not even, uh, do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Meaning this, how do we value life? Even to the point where he says we're to love our enemies. And not merely just to love others who love us. But we're to love all people. To care for everyone, no matter when they have lived, where they have lived, what they look like, what they have, what they don't have, what shoes they wear, what clothes they wear. We're to value all. Especially the broken. James 1.27 James says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God, our Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unstained by the world. You and I are to provide love and care for the young, the elderly, and the widows. We don't just fight for the baby in the womb, but for the little infant of single mothers struggling to make it. It's one thing to be anti-abortion. That's only half the narrative, but completely different. To be pro-life. I love one pastor in Atlanta. I've enjoyed just trying to understand his world a little bit and understand some of what he's written. His name is Leon Crump. Listen to what he says. He says, anti-abortion means you have a conviction that it is murder to kill a child in the womb. And he says that's, that's a good position. But he says to be pro-life means that you not only want that child to enter the world, but that you want that child to thrive. When they enter the world. Not just about getting a child into the world. But about making sure children flourish as human beings once they're here. And he shared this cartoon a little bit. Just to kind of give a picture of sometimes the attitude of our world. We'll do whatever we can to protect your life. That baby is in the womb. And rightfully so. But what do we do after that? different comments being made, like now you're on your own, get a job, moocher. Hope your mom doesn't want food stamps or medical insurance. Just different expressions and attitudes. And listen to what Crump says to this. He says, here's the deal. If we're pro-life, if we're really pro-life from the womb to the tomb. It doesn't mean that we don't fight for the justice of the unborn, but let's make sure we're also on the right side of caring for others with social issues related to those impoverished children. What what does that mean? It means that you and I are to be, be about helping those. I mean, this is the biblical narrative of life, to help those in need, to creatively and proactively care for those like single moms, the fatherless children, the orphans. That's one of the things I love about the Ridge in your heart. Many in here, that's, that's your heartbeat. From foster care to adopting children, to caring for the needs of kids and single moms. I love different stories I get to hear and different things I get privy to of just how you care for people. Things that go unseen and unheard to many And then I love this. Just recently, I had a gentleman in this congregation come to me right around Thanksgiving time. He said, listen, he said, I've got a heartbeat for something. I said, what is that? He said, well, um, I I, want to see us start a small group, a life group for young adult or adults who have special needs. I thought, man, okay, let's talk some more. So we did. And I love this gentleman's heart because he recognized there's some families in our church that, that have older children, with special needs. And there's some young adult, old, adult age, special needs um, adults that come to our church as well, whether it's physical needs or whether it's mental needs as well. And recognizing what can we, how can we care for them? And his desire was, hey, let's start a group for them. To care for them. And I love that. And get to hear from him in the next couple weeks um, about that and look forward to that. But that that hits to where we are as a people. How we're to love and to serve others and to care for them. To think creatively and proactively beyond the norm and to think, how can I love the whole story of life? We're to care for our children, to care for our youth, even here in our church to love all people, to love every soul in this room. One of the things we we got to yesterday morning is life groups talk about how significant it is as a church that we care for the souls of each other in here. And we're doing some things as as groups to make sure that, that no person falls but in the cracks this year to make sure that they're loved and they're cared for. Because why? Because it's about the whole story of life. About loving one another, valuing one another. And then lastly today, I want us to look at verse 27 as we close. And I want you to hear Paul's heart. He shares that God has created every man. He's created the time they were born, the place where they were live. He's placed them there. It's all part of his plan, but listen to what he says in verse 27. I have done this, he says, God has done this, that mankind would seek God if perhaps they might grope, meaning they might search for him, reach out for him, and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The heart of Paul is that we would understand the narrative of life, but that ultimately we understand that in this life, the greatest thing we could ever have is a relationship with God, that God created us in his image, that he created us in his likeness so that we would know him and have a relationship with him. He wanted people to know the gospel for it speaks of Jesus, who not only gives life, but eternal life. God punctuated the cause for life when he chose to enter the womb himself for our sake. Could you imagine the ultrasound of the living God at eight weeks? If you could do that, Mary came in. Imagine that ultrasound at 20 weeks or full term. That's what God did. He came and he dwelt among us. He showed us who God is, the great value of life, and how he not only values life here on earth, but he, allows, he values our soul to the point that he was willing to die for us. I raise again for you and I. As I go back to the story of real options this morning, I share with you the beginning, some women of different cultures and different backgrounds, Hindu, Buddhist, and Muslim. 4 specifically, this past year, as they have come into the office with the intention of aborting a child, God met them with a different narrative. And that's why I think it's so significant To remember that that some people just have different stories, they have different narratives, they have different understanding, and how significant our role is to just say, "Hey, listen, can I can I tell you a different story?" And Real Options did that, and as a result, not only were babies not aborted, but four women, different cultures, different religion backgrounds, came and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as they heard how God values life and and values their soul to the point that Jesus came and died for them. One Muslim woman who received Christ went home and shared the same story with her husband, who also came to Christ. It's loving the whole story of life. That's our prayer as a church. Yes, blow the trumpet for the unborn. Not everyone knows the narrative. We must first know it and share it. And then simply be people who love. Be a loving church, valuing all life, all people, all walks, all different backgrounds, all different cultures. Love them. That's what Jesus desires from us. And ultimately, that we would love their soul. That we would Tell them of Jesus and what he did for them. Let me pray for you.